You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. And I want to read the first six verses. Awake, awake, O Zion. It's on page 739. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust. Rise up. Sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. At first, my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately, Assyria has oppressed them. And now, what do I have here, declares the Lord? For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. Why don't you think the motto of contemporary society here, Scotland, Dundee today, should be? I was thinking about this, and I was thinking things like, be who you are, be whatever you want to be, live free, know yourself. Now, there's a problem immediately with that, because what if you do know yourself, and the self that you know isn't what you like? It isn't very attractive. What if you feel worthless? Sometimes some of you will have no concept of that at all. You'll have no experience of it. But others, you know exactly what it feels like. You know what it feels like just to feel just like that and useless and empty and what's the point? And that is what I think this part of God's Word deals with, because I think it's dealing with a real cause of spiritual paralysis. As we look through this passage, we see that God's people, Zion, had been defiled, enslaved, sold, oppressed, mocked, sold for nothing, taken away for nothing, treated as nothing. There's a song uh, I, I'm too young to remember it the first time round, but uh, the Beatles had a song called Nowhere Man, and I just, I remember as a kid, I don't know why it just stuck in my head, and I can, even though I haven't listened to it for years, I know all the words, he's a real nowhere man, living in his nowhere land, sitting in his nowhere land, making all his plans for nobody. Who are you? I'm just nothing. I'm nobody. It's interesting that that's one of the major causes of discouragement and depression and so on. Who am I? I'm just, I'm nobody. Everyone's trying to be somebody and people think they're someone, think they're really famous. I was listening to an interview this week where somebody said to them, and did you think you were one of the best artists in the world? Oh, I knew I was. No, no, no problem. Obviously, he wasn't Scottish, you know, but I, I just, I knew I was. And I just thought, ow. Could you really say that? Now, God's people had been treated as nothing. 
Egypt treated her as nothing. Assyria treated her as nothing. And so did Babylon. And here's the thing that happens. When you treat somebody like nothing or when you treat them like dirt, that often is how they feel and how they perceive themselves. That's one of the the big difficulties, for example, in abuse, in domestic abuse, where a man treats his wife like dirt, and she comes to believe she is dirt, and she deserves it. And the strange thing is that though that marriage may break up, she will often go and marry somebody else who does exactly the same thing, treats them like dirt, because what do I deserve? I am dirt. You can sink so low that when you hear about having love and confidence and so on, it just doesn't make any sense. And I think spiritually that can happen as well. And what God is doing here through the prophet Isaiah is challenging his people to see themselves as God sees them, not as they see themselves, nor as their enemy sees them. So back in Isaiah 51 and verse 9, you've got the people saying, Awake, awake, clothe yourself with strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. And God's answer to that is Isaiah 52. It's a bit kind of almost humorous because God's answer is, no, you waken up. Awake, O Zion. So it's almost as though, imagine if, if you had a situation in a bedroom where you've got two teenagers and one shouting, wake up, and the other shouting, no, you wake up. Well, they're both awake. They're shouting at each other. But here is God saying to his people, no, you don't understand. You don't get it. And we need to be woken. I love, um, Calvin always has a great turn of phrase. And he says that God wants this doctrine that's taught here. He wants this doctrine to get into their drowsy and stupefied hearts. He wants them to waken up from their mourning and their drunkenness and their lethargy. And I have a suspicion that even some of you who are older Christians, I have a suspicion that God's word to you this morning is you need to waken up from your mourning, from your lethargy, from your drowsiness, from your stupefied hearts. Well, what is this wonderful doctrine that God wants to put right into our inmost being? Some of you will be aware that there's an American televangelist called Creflo Dollar, which I I still can't believe that he's actually got that name. But um, he is a famous character who uh, recently um, said that God had told him he had to have a $65 million Learjet so that he could commute between his congregations in Atlanta and New York because there wasn't a Greyhound bus. Um, I'm pretty sure... That Stuart's going to say something about the deacon's court, but I'm pretty sure if I wrote to the deacon's court and said, I'm doing a, a twin with a church in Madrid, is it okay if St. Peter's buys me a, a wee jet to go from Dundee Airport? It doesn't have to be a Lear one. You know, you can go a bit cheaper if you want. I know what the answer would be. Well, Mr. Dollar is coming to Scotland, and he's bringing his message to Glasgow, Edinburgh, and Aberdeen, missing out Dundee for some reason. And... Uh, I want to say something about it because I think his message is one that's causing a great harm to the church in Scotland. Um, I had written about this and 
I've received this week numerous letters from ministers saying our congregations are being devastated by this stuff. People from Pentecostal and charismatic congregations particularly, but pastors who don't agree with it, but say that they're getting this and Christians are falling for it. And I was thinking, no, they wouldn't, but I've received so many letters from Christians saying, what's wrong with this? Don't you believe in God's blessing? Now, here's his message, and Dollar's message sounds like the answer to the question of worthlessness. You are not worthless, he says. You are the son of the king, and he wants you to have everything that he has. You have all the authority of the king. You can do what the king does. You are little Jesuses walking around. Jesus healed people, you healed people. Jesus raised people from the dead, you take the authority to raise people from the dead. You don't have to be sick, you don't have to be poor, you just have to sow your seed money and you will reap a tremendous harvest. Now, on one level, it sounds very attractive. Those of you who are in any way theologically astute or understand the Bible Or, to be honest, those of you who've got any humanity at all will realize how cruel that is and how unbiblical it is. As it happened this week, I was down in Bridgeview Nursing Home. I was asked to go and visit a lady who was dying. And I hate, I mean, who likes death? But two hours after I was there, she died. According to Mr. Dollar, I should have claimed authority and commanded her to live. How cruel to her family and how cruel to her. It's not what the gospel is. It sounds impressive. It sounds good, but it's not. But this is God's answer. God's answer is not, by the way, the, almost the opposite one. You just say, well, we're all doomed and just suck it up. That's the way it is. That's the answer of the atheist, not the answer of God. The answer of the atheist is you've got nothing you can do about it. That's the way it is. That's life. Life sucks. God gives us three things here that I think are just incredible. Number one, he says, get dressed. Awake, get dressed. Clothe yourselves with strength. Put on your garments of splendor. I couldn't help but this phrase went through my head about put on your glad rags. Glad rags. Um, You know, it's this image of getting dressed. Get up, get dressed. In, uh, In beautiful, beautiful garments. You see someone, um, maybe you go into their house and uh, they're just lying around. If you've got trackies, wearing your trackies, you know, and just can't be bothered with anything. You haven't shaved. You haven't brushed your teeth. You just can't be bothered. You've just lost the will to keep going. And someone comes in and says, come on, get, get a shower, get dressed, get shaved, get your clothes. We're going out. Well, it's that kind of call, and it's a call that's very specific here because it's a, a, a wonderful image that's given that you need to understand. You need always in the Bible, you need to take always the, the, the whole picture, and it's the big picture here. What are these clothes, these garments of splendor? Firstly, they are the garments of the priesthood. They are holiness. Exodus 28 verse 2, make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. You see, God's had promised his people through the priesthood that they would be a priestly people, a people who could connect with God, a people who would be in the presence of God. And that promise had not been realized. And God is saying to his people, wake up, now's the time. In the New Testament, we have that expressed in First Peter, where we're told that we are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood 
a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What did the priest do? The priest prayed. The priest led the people into the presence of God. The priest worshipped. And in the New Testament church, strictly speaking, we don't have priests. I am not a priest. Not in the sense of I'm this kind of intermediary between you, ordinary peasants, and God. That's not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches this amazing thing that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a priest. All of us are priests in that sense, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. And the garments, if you read through, those of you who use the McShane calendar, we've just coming towards the end of Leviticus, and all that stuff about the priestly robes. Um, again, I don't know why. I think I must have just been a strange child. As a child, I actually liked that bit of the Bible. I've, I found it quite fascinating. And there's a, a wonderful book by uh, Andrew Boner on Leviticus, which I used to take around and read because I just found it so. Uh, I, I just found it so interesting. But it was this idea of being clothed with the righteousness of God and the beauty of God, not your own filthy rags, but dressed in God's righteousness. And that's the second thing with these clothes. They indicate separation. They indicate holiness. The uncircumcised and the defiled will not enter. We have been cleansed. The blood of bulls and goats does not cleanse us. You see, when Aaron wore his priestly robes, there was a kind of air of unreality. But now the real has come. The unreality was that they would go through all this ritual, and yet the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin. We want to go to heaven. Revelation 21 says this, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And automatically... Every single one of you is excluded. Excluded because every single one of us has done stuff that's shameful and deceitful. All of us. And I will guarantee that before the end of this day, you and I will do something or think something or say something that if everyone knew about it, we would be ashamed. So none of us can go to heaven except for this, that we are dressed with robes that are not our own, if you like, using that imagery. It's holiness. It's a, the bride being dressed for the groom. And that's one of just the fantastic things about being a Christian. We've had two weddings here recently, and one of the honeymoon couples back. Nice to see you, back from your skiing holiday and all your gallivanting. But um, when Kirstein walked down here. She looked absolutely fantastic. Now, people go, oh, you say everyone looks fantastic. Actually, they do. I've never seen a bride that doesn't look fantastic. Maybe you'll be the first, but <laughs> I'll try not to say it. I mean, imagine that. Imagine coming into a wedding and going, oh, what's that you're wearing? You know, um, I had a friend who once said to Annabelle, she had a new dress, and he once said to her, what's that sackcloth that you're wearing? Which wasn't very nice of him. Um, I don't think that dress was ever worn again. I'm not sure. But you wouldn't say that to the bride. What, what's that you're wearing? 
Every bride I've ever seen comes in, and they look stunning. They look gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. And this is what the image, it's, a, it's the most beautiful image that God uses of his people. But instead of lying low in the dust, instead of lying naked, instead of lying clothed in, in filth, we are dressed as a bride. And that's the key, by the way, to understanding holiness. Holiness is not saying, right, if I do this and do this and do this and do this, then God will really like me. That's as ridiculous as the bride on her wedding day saying, if I dress up really nice, then maybe my husband-to-be will say yes. You know the commitment is already there. One of the reasons that every bride looks beautiful and radiant is because they are radiant, because it is a day of acceptance and of joy and no doubt. They're not walking down the front thinking, will he say yes or will he say no? Nobody does that. Well, unless you need help. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's the same with holiness. We're not saying, I'm going to be really, really holy so God will love me. You are aware of what God has done. And because you are aware of what God has done and aware of who Christ is and because you love Christ, you want him to be pleased with us. Dear friends, Peter goes on from the passage you just read, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, one of the problems is the minute you say something like that, you're thinking, yeah, but how do I put on holiness? I don't have any holiness. If you have a real knowledge of yourself and a real knowledge of sin, you know that you cannot clothe yourself with holiness because all our garments are like filthy rags. Even the very best things that we do are tainted in soil. Even that wonderful act that you did that really helped someone, that really blessed someone, is tainted in soil. I'm preaching God's word this morning. That's a tremendous thing to be able to do. But I know it's tainted and soiled because we all have a mixture of motives in doing even the very best things. And this is where the extraordinary grace of Christ comes in because he comes and he takes our good works, which are like filthy rags, and he gives us his he, if you like, he washes them. All this image of imagery of being washed and cleansed and purified. And so we're told, shake off the dust, rise up, sit enthroned. Now, what's the dust? The dust here, I think, is the dust of mourning. It's the dust of being just down and out. And it's interesting as well because he says, get up, sit down. That's what he says. But it's an incredible thing. He's saying, get up from the dust. It's like you're lying on a prison floor. Get up from the dust and come and sit on the throne. That's my throne, by the way. Come and sit on the throne. And, and to these people, that must have been an extraordinary thing. I'll tell you what it's like. Um, we went to see uh, a film uh, yesterday in the DCA called Deep Chen about most interesting film. Uh, and most informative in lots of ways in helping understand the refugee situation. It's about a Sri Lankan refugee, uh, a Tamil tiger, basically a terrorist, who comes to a housing estate in France, and he's just trying to get his wife's being killed, and his family's being killed, and um, he, he's managed to get out by faking a marriage and fake family and so on, and they arrive, and they're in Paris, 
and they want to stay, and they basically tell lies so they get to stay. And here they are, they've arrived in France, isn't this wonderful? And they get sent to live in a banlieue, in, a, in a, uh, an urban housing estate, which is a slum. And it's almost worse than where they were. And it's dominated by poverty, drugs, gangs, and oppression. You've kind of been taken away, but it's still not freedom. Real freedom comes, and I'm sorry for the spoiler, but when they make it to England, because as we all know, England don't only have the best football team, it's the greatest country in the world in which to live. But it's real freedom. You, you see this image at the end of, if you take the two images, the, the slum in France, they go in, and there's no furniture. They're lying on the floor. They're lying in the dust. And at the end, those that make it, they're in some leafy suburban garden in Surrey or somewhere where there's even a luxury couch outside, chatting, talking, meeting with friends, loving and laughing, laughing, friends, family, beauty, peace and love. That's what God is saying. It's an imperative. He's saying, go on, get dressed. Creflo Dollar would say, get up and do it. We know what the Bible says. We are down in the dust. We need to be raised from the dead. And this is the extraordinary thing is the Holy Spirit does that. That's why St. Augustine prayed, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. God commands us to rise up and go, I can't. And God says, I know, rise up. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to enable us to do that. He commands the dead stones to live and he commands the skeleton to get up and dance. He breathes life into those dead bones. He goes on. Sit enthroned. We belong to a different kingdom. We serve a different king. We are kings as well as priests. Verse 3. We're commanded to be free. We're commanded to dress. We were to- and we're told about free. And this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing and without money you will be redeemed. They had been sold. They belonged to someone else. But real freedom is to come out of spiritual bondage. Now, the purpose of verses 3 through to 5 is to teach that redemption is not a commercial transaction. We are bought with something that is far more precious than money or material goods. It's an incredible indictment on today's world, particularly Western society, that slavery has returned. I wonder, how much would you be sold for if you were a slave? I remember as a child being greatly disturbed by the fact that it wasn't slavery, it was, we were paid, but um, we, I went beating with my dad and my brother and our dog, Tweed. And my dad got paid a pound for the day, and the kids all got paid 50p, and the dog got two pounds. Uh, and I thought, I'm worth more than the dog. Well, if you were to be sold into slavery, how much are you worth? How much do you think you would get? You know, says Peter, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. When our society says be free, our society does not know what freedom is, and our society, even if it did, couldn't give that freedom. Freedom comes from what Christ has done for us, and freedom comes from the value that Christ places upon us by shedding His blood for us. We are bought with the precious blood of Christ. God doesn't say, here are a thousand cattle. He doesn't say, here are a million pounds. He says, you are mine because I gave you my son. That's how valuable you are. If, if you get into that mindset where you think, oh, I'm so worthless, I'm so useless, I don't, can't do this, I don't fit with that, I've got such a rotten temper, I'm such a horrible person, you think, I'm useless and worthless, you say, ah, yeah, but be free, you come out of spiritual bondage. And that's why verses 4 to 6 are really speaking about identity. Now, the question of identity there is hugely important. It's not just that we are a beautiful bride. It's not just that we're bought with the precious blood of Christ, which makes us priceless. Now we are called by God's people, and we're given His name. And I think for us, in our culture and society, being given someone's name, not a big deal. Uh, in marriage, of course, it's fairly common. You're the bride. You usually take, uh, at least in most cultures, uh, in the West anyway, you usually take the husband's name. You're given their name. But it's still not that big a deal, I think, for us. But in this context, to be the name of God is very important. Now, before I just mention something about why that is, how do we know what God's name is? That's interesting. When Moses was faced with the burning bush, he asked simply, well, who, who shall I say has sent me? I am who I am, Yahweh, Jehovah. Because the name of God is always a self-revelation of God. We cannot know God without God revealing Himself to us. It tells us who God is, and that's why His name is so important. Calvin says this, To know the name of the Lord is to lay aside every false opinion and know Him from His work, which is true in, in His true image, and to know Him from His works. We must not imagine God according to the fancy of men, but must comprehend Him as He declares Himself to us. And that, by the way, is why real doctrine is so important and real teaching is so important and why Creflo Dollar is so dangerous. Because if a racist was coming to this country and preaching his racism in the name of Christ, it would be horrific. But it is just as horrific if people come and teach about God, what God does not say about himself. And if you ever find me doing that, you need to rebuke me. You need to correct it. Real knowledge of God comes through what God reveals of himself, not what you feel about him, not your circumstances, but what God says he is. Let God be true and every man a liar. But it's more, because it's not just knowing about. John L. Mackay puts it beautifully. In every age, it is possible 
to rest satisfied with a formal knowledge of doctrine regarding God. And it may be, again, that some of you here, you've got it. You've got the right doctrine. But Mackay goes on, without attaining the knowledge talked of here, which goes beyond the ability to state and defend the tenets of the faith. This is a living grasp of all that God has revealed himself to be and an acceptance of the claims he makes on our lives. The reality of the divine purpose, wisdom, and power is supremely disclosed in what he graciously provides for his people's salvation. And that is turn is focused on the servant who was none other than Jesus Christ himself. Those who believe in the name of the Son of God know that they have eternal life in him. Why? Because we know him. And that's why when people blaspheme Jesus, when people state nonsense about you are little Jesus is walking around and you can raise the dead, you scream out with everything, no, no, that's not right. That is not Jesus. He is beautiful beyond our comprehension, and yet he reveals himself to us. And so here in this passage, for example, verse 4, God reveals himself by the sovereign Lord. We, we take the names of God. We take them so flippantly and so for granted. But for people who had been oppressed by Egypt, oppressed by Assyria, and oppressed by Babylon, and they'd said, where's your God? They're mocking and mocking and mocking. And God says to his people, I am the sovereign Lord, sovereign not just over you, but over Assyria, Egypt, Babylon. God is concerned for his people. God sees their misery. Look at verse 5. What do I have here? That could be translated, does this matter? If you wanted to put it into um, youth slang, whatever. What does it matter? Does God care what's happening to his people in Syria? Does God care what's happening to his people in this country? Does God care what is happening to you? The injustice and the wrong and the pain and the evil. Of course he does. God doesn't think we are worthless, nor is he capricious. If you think that you are worthless, if you think that God is capricious, and by capricious I mean he just goes, oh, well, fair enough, you suffer, you live, you get blessed, you, I don't care. If you think that God is like that, it's no wonder that you're miserable. But that is not the God of the Bible. If you realize how valuable you are and how the Lord cares for every teardrop and longs to wipe away every tear, as Revelation says, every tear will be wiped from their eyes, then what comfort is there? When your child is in pain, when your friend is in pain, you long to hug them, you long to be with them, you long to take that from them. And that is the attitude of God. Instead of the helpless tears we then have, we have the tears of joy. God, um, that phrase could also be translated, what do I have to do here? How does God redeem his people? And we know the answer is through Christ. And that is why God is concerned for his name. Ezekiel 36, 21, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. God's name is blasphemed when his people are oppressed. God's name is blasphemed when there is mockery. And God's name is blasphemed when his people do not put on their garments of holiness. We need, I think, a new appreciation of the Lord's name. Isn't it ironic that even Christians think that using God's name as a swear word is somehow better than using sexual words as a swear word? No, it's not. It's not better at all. The way that God's name is used, using God's name as spiritual punctuation, 
Using God's name to justify your own sin. Using God's name to get what you want, to manipulate. Using God's name to work yourself up into a fervor. That's an awful sin because God's name is so precious. We are very concerned about our own reputation. If you say, no, I'm not, I'm sorry, I don't believe you. Imagine if I phoned you just in an hour's time and said, oh, by the way, did you hear what so-and-so was saying about you? You're going to go through the roof. You're going to blow a gasket. You see something written about you on the internet or whatever, and you want to defend, you want to respond. But what about God's name? Romans 2.24, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. People say to me, you shouldn't say anything about people like Creflo Dollar because it's critiquing another Christian. Well, I was a little bit convicted by that, actually. Someone wrote me and said that, and I was a little bit convicted, and I prayed, and I switched on my computer. I should have said I prayed, and I read my Bible, but I prayed, and I switched on my computer. And God TV came up, and lo and behold, it was Creflo Dollar. And it was a half-hour sermon, and it was a sermon from the pit of hell. It was the most astonishingly depressing sermon. And I just, you know this? I was so thankful, and I thought, Lord, that's the answer. That's the answer. The message that's being taught. I don't know whether Mr. Dollar is a backslidden Christian or whatever, but the message that he teaches is the opposite. Listen to this. This is what he said. Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promise of financial prosperity. That's why Jesus died for you, so that you could be rich, so that your bank account could be full. What is that? That's not the comfort that comes from God's Word. And that's why the Lord says, wake up, I'm coming for you. Now, you might say, well, so what? Well, He wants His people to be clothed with strength and joy. Let me just back a little bit, and some of you here might say, wait a minute, what if I'm not there? What if I don't belong? What if I'm one of these quote-unquote uncircumcised and, uncircumcised and defiled? How do I get these beautiful clothes? How do I become a son or daughter of the king? And here's the thing. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about race. It's not about wealth. It's not about religion. It's not about your goodness. It is, as we sang, about coming to Christ. Not relying on your own goodness, not relying on your background, not relying on your ability, not relying on your knowledge, but relying entirely and 100% on the beauty, goodness, and power of the Christ who died for you. Look what he says right at the very end. Yes, it is I. In that day, they will know my name. In that day, they will know it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. God does have plans to prosper and bless us. I believe absolutely in the blessing of God. Absolutely. Not in the shallow, materialistic, self-serving way of the prosperity gospel teachers, but rather in the glorious and beautiful way of Christ. Now, that blessing will include you go home and have your Sunday lunch and bless the Lord that you have a roof over your head. Bless the Lord that you're not a Syrian refugee. Bless the Lord that you have fantastic gifts that you've received. Of course, but think most of all of the blessing of receiving in the glorious and beautiful way from Christ. The chains around your neck have gone. You've been set free from sin and become slaves to God. There's one thing I did agree with Mr. Dollar on 
when he talked about entering into the possessions that Christ has bought for you, but he didn't buy you a Learjet. What he bought you was beauty and freedom and holiness and liberty, including freedom from the desire to want all these luxurious things. Because it's so easy for us to go back into bondage. It is for freedom, says Paul, that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Some of you are slaves again because of the false teaching that has slipped into your consciousness, because of the obsession with yourself and the things of this world. We, and I include myself absolutely in this, we all need to get back to the beautiful doctrine about Jesus Christ and what we are in Him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You are his bride. He stands at the front and looks as you enter the door in absolute wonderment because he bought you. He paid for that dress. You are his bride. You shall reign with him. You are his body. You are his delight. Awake, O Zion, and clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us. Those of us who are your people and who are quite discouraged and a bit battered with things and think very lowly of ourselves, Lord, thank you for your mercy in enabling us to see that, but help us to lift our eyes away from ourselves and to see what we are in you and to see the beauty of the bride of Christ. And those of us who as yet do not know you, Lord, teach us to cast away all our self-righteousness and our self-effort and instead look to you as the Savior of the world and our Savior. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk for information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.